Hello, and welcome to the first Reorg Covenants podcast. I'm Peter Washkowitz, and sitting next to me is my colleague, Pat Evans. Today, we're going to discuss news in the leveraged finance and distressed debt markets, and we're also going to discuss in depth some of the financial and legal issues surrounding two companies that have been getting a lot of attention and whose bonds have been trading a lot, Hertz and Neiman Marcus. First of all, because this is the first ever Reorg Covenants podcast, let's get some housekeeping items out of the way and tell you a little bit about ourselves and Reorg Covenants. Peter and I worked at big law firms in their finance and restructuring groups for many years. Peter at Simpson Thatcher in Millbank and myself at Cadwallader in Kirkland. We joined Reorg Covenants not too long ago. Reorg Covenants has a team of lawyers with similar backgrounds to ours, and we also have financial analysts who come from investment banks, hedge funds, and other financial institutions. Our product was formally launched earlier this year by Reorg Research a company that provides real-time news, commentary, and analysis on issues affecting the distressed debt, event-driven, and leveraged finance markets. And Reorg Covenants, uh, in particular, specializes in the analysis of publicly available credit agreements, indentures, and financial statements. We focus on highlighting hidden risks in the capital structure that investors may not be aware of, while also writing about how certain events or transactions may implicate covenants in a company's debt and a company's options for addressing its debt. Our subscribers are primarily hedge funds and other investors, investment banks, and law firms. The subscribers also get access to some cutting-edge technology we have that facilitates the review of debt documents and SEC filings. So as I mentioned, this is the first Reorg Covenants podcast we've done, and we hope to continue hosting these, and we hope you'll continue to listen. So now that some of those housekeeping items are out of the way, maybe we should dive in. So we'll, we'll go into some news and recent coverage at a high level, and then we'll discuss in detail a couple of names, Hertz and Neiman Marcus, as Peter said. So Peter, you want to walk through some of the news? Sure. So our first name is Dynagy, which we've written about in the past. Last week on uh, the company's earnings on the, on the company's earnings call, uh, management stated that they would be able to redeem about a billion dollars of unsecured bonds that were coming due in 2019 without having to go to the capital markets. They believe their liquidity and planned asset sales will give them enough cash. The bonds have been trading at around 102 as of Wednesday. We've written about the company's secured debt capacity and its ability to use asset sale proceeds. Valiant, one of our most popular names, their bonds and stock have been trading up about 40% in the last week following the company's relatively strong earnings for Q1. We've covered Valiant extensively and written about the company's secure debt capacity, its ability to conduct secure debt exchanges, and ability to use asset sale proceeds. Calpine is a name that we started covering last week. On the company's quarter one earnings call, management suggested that they would be open to being acquired if the price is right. Bonds have generally been trading in the mid-90s following the call. We recently put out a piece on the change of control provisions contained in the company's debt documents. And in other news, Intelsat, a pretty hot name, filed a 6K earlier this week, cleansing a group of bondholders who had entered into confidential discussions with the company on May 11th and May 12th regarding non-binding proposals in connection with the proposed exchange offers and a transaction with OneWeb and Intelsat. The company also extended the expiration date of its exchange offers from May 15th to May 18th. That's a name that Rear Research and Rear Covenants have followed very closely and continue to cover regularly. Frontier Communications, another one that we've covered closely, recently announced on its earnings call that that it intends to issue secure debt in the second quarter of this year and to use the proceeds to address maturities and reduce its interest expense. We've written about that company's secure debt capacity and what it might do to address its outstanding notes. 
And then Genon uh, Energy, which um, recently funded into escrow $550 million of new first lien notes instead it planned to use the proceeds to redeem its 2017 notes. The 2017 notes continue to trade at a fairly significant discount to par, which may mean that the market is pricing in some sort of deal execution risk. We've recently written about secured debt capacity and some of the nuanced ways one could read the amendment provisions in the 2018s and 2020 notes indenture. So that's it for the high-level news. Peter, do you want to jump into Hertz in more detail? Sure. So obviously Hertz is a car rental company that is probably most famous for the O.J. Simpson commercials back in the 70s. Hertz currently has about $3.9 billion of outstanding corporate debt, comprised of $695 million of outstanding term loan debt. Uh, they have an undrawn $1.7 billion revolver and $3.2 billion of unsecured notes. The company's 2018 and 2019 notes trade around par. Its 2020 and 2021 notes trade around 90. Its 2022 notes trade around 85, and its 2024 notes trade at around 80. While all of Hertz's debt has been trading down following a fairly significant earnings miss last week, the prices of the 2021, 22, and 24 notes have seen fairly significant moves downward. Importantly, the company has about $10 billion of additional debt incurred by special purpose securitization subsidiaries, which is used to finance the company's fleet of vehicles. In terms of our coverage of Hertz, including our review of their debt documents and and calculations of leverage ratios, the $10 billion of vehicle debt is excluded. I'll return to these securitization subsidiaries a little later. REORG has written about Hertz's secured debt capacity and ability to redeem the unsecured notes prior to their maturity. While the notes afford the company substantial flexibility in terms of its capacity to incur additional secured debt and prepaid the unsecured notes, the company's bank debt essentially restricts it from incurring additional secured debt, assuming the company wants to preserve its ability to draw on the revolver. As of March 31, 2017, the company's liquidity was a little over $2.4 billion, comprised of the $1.7 billion revolver and $785 million of cash. Uh, nevertheless, the company's stock has plunged over 50% this year, and we've gotten a number of calls on the name. So it seems like the balance sheet is fairly strong. They've got a lot of liquidity, and uh, first lien leverage ratio is not too high. What's, uh, what's all the concern, and what are the subscribers calling about? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first started analyzing Hertz debt documents, I thought the same thing. Uh, but after looking through some of their public filings and talking with some market participants, all the problems seem to stem from those special purpose securitization subsidiaries. Those are the ones that finance the vehicles? Yeah, without getting too technical, lest I confuse myself and our listeners, these special purpose subsidiaries issue notes that are secured by a revolving pool of collateral consisting primarily of the fleet of vehicles purchased with the proceeds of those notes. The collateral pool is revolving in that the subsidiaries typically sell or dispose of the vehicles every one or two years and replace them with newer ones. The typical arrangement is Hertz Hertz will uh, lease the the vehicles from the securitization subsidiaries and pay monthly lease payments plus depreciation costs on the vehicles. Under the lease agreements, the depreciation costs are adjusted on regularly agreed intervals during the lease. Hertz's fleet of vehicles are split into program cars and non-program cars. The program cars are purchased from manufacturers under an agreement whereby the manufacturer agrees to repurchase the cars and agreed upon price based on guaranteed depreciation rates and residual prices of the cars. The non-program vehicles, which are the source of most of Hertz's problems, are sold by the securitization subsidiary in any way it wants, 
typically through wholesale used car auction markets. So I guess, how does that mechanic uh, affect the outstanding debt? Pat, that is the crux of the issue. Hertz's debt prices are essentially a reflection of Hertz's perceived ability to repay that debt. Now, under these lease agreements with the subsidiaries, Hertz is on the hook for the depreciation of its fleet of vehicles, and in the end reimburses the securitization subsidiaries for the difference between the price the car is eventually sold for and the price at which it was bought at. While Hertz's depreciation risk can be controlled with respect to its program vehicles, since it knows what those vehicles will be sold for, it's a lot less certain with regards to its non-program vehicles. In Hertz's most recent 10Q, it it disclosed that non-program vehicles made up roughly 80% of its U.S. fleet and 42% of the international fleet. So increasing depreciation rates affect 80% of Hertz's U.S. vehicle fleet and 42% of its international one. It also disclosed that depreciation rates have been increasing faster and the price of used cars has been declining more rapidly than it had expected. To put it into perspective, the company's 10Q disclosed that Year over year, there's a 15% increase in unit depreciation rate to $348 per unit per month in the quarter, which resulted in $701 million of depreciation expenses it was responsible for. For the trailing 12-month period, depreciation expenses totaled approximately $2.7 billion, which is a hit on its EBITDA. Management also mentioned on the call that a 1% decrease in residual values translates to roughly $60 million. To sum it up for you, Pat, as depreciation costs increase, Hertz's EBITDA decreases, and while the company's liquidity may seem fine now, those depreciation costs may start eating away at it. Importantly, the credit agreement includes a three-and-a-quarter first lien maintenance financial covenant, which steps down to three times on December 31st from there until the life of the agreement. As Hertz's EBITDA and liquidity decline, its ability to comply with the maintenance covenants becomes that much harder. Right, and what's, what's causing this increased depreciation rate and does the company have a plan to mitigate this risk going forward? Well, I mean, if you just think about it from you know practical perspective, there's there's becoming a decreased need for anyone to own cars. I mean, with the with the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Vias of the world, um, you know, there, there's really no need to own a car. Is you know you can you can get a car pretty much anytime you want. While Hertz didn't mention that, they did mention that there were uh, that a typical seasonal upswing in used car values didn't occur in February. In terms of the steps they're taking to minimize the losses, on the earnings call they mentioned that they were going to focus on improving the quality of the vehicle mix, which would hopefully lead to better sales of the cars in the future. They also talked about negotiating with vehicle manufacturers for better purchase prices and expanding their daily rental car programs. So whether or not these strategies will work remain to be seen. So this securitization structure that you've described, is that unique to Hertz or do we see other companies using that? Nope. In fact, Avis does the exact same thing as Hertz. And, you know, while Avis's stock and its debt are trading down, it not, it's not even close to the degree at which Hertz's is. This is, I mean, this is probably due to um, Hertz having much higher leverage than Avis does. Right. <clears throat> and I think you mentioned something in the indentures, some interesting provisions that relate to Hertz's fleet financings. You want to walk through those? It wasn't the fleet financings, actually, Pat. It was their corporate debt. But yeah, they were... So Hertz has five different series of notes outstanding, and they're each um, issued under separate indentures. But four of the indentures restrict the company from incurring debt subject to certain exceptions. And each of them had the same surprising weakness and holes in it. And it was just surprising that, that they were in each one of them. 
So you know, as is customary in dentures, at the end of uh, at the end of the debt covenant, there are usually are reclassification provisions that allow issuers to reclassify debt into other baskets if they can comply with the conditions of uh, different baskets. There's also usually a restriction on the issuer's ability to reclassify credit agreement debt. So that's fine. Now, in the Hertz indenture, they have reclassification provisions, but there's no outright restriction on the company reclassifying its credit agreement debt. So that in and of itself would not be particularly a material hole, just because that, that, that provision does come up every now and then in other indentures. However, there also is an existing debt basket, and typically, and pretty much universally actually, in indentures, the existing debt basket carves out credit agreement debt. Since most companies typically will enter into bank debt facilities before they issue notes, if there wasn't a carve-out for the credit agreement debt in the existing debt basket, issuers would, would simply be able to reclassify their credit agreement debt as having been incurred under the existing debt baskets, thereby freeing up total capacity under the credit agreement debt basket. However, in Hertz, there was an exclusion, but it excluded certain intercompany debt. So whether or not that was intentional or not, and I can't imagine that it was intentional, under the indentures, Hertz has extremely flexible provisions in terms of its ability to incur additional debt. In addition, there is a liens basket that has what we at Reorg like to call a hooky-duke provision, which essentially allows the company to secure any debt um, that is that can be deemed uh, credit facility debt. Since the definition of credit facilities in the indentures is, is quite broad and includes capital markets debt, the hooky-duke liens basket essentially allows the company to secure any debt um, that is permitted to be incurred since pretty much all debt they will incur can be classified as credit facility debt. So I thought those were pretty interesting provisions that, that you know, maybe one might be found in, in an indenture, but both of them was, was, was fairly surprising. Anyway, I think that's about it for my analysis of Hertz. I think it's a very fascinating name. It's, it's, it's somewhat complicated, but I, if, if there are subscribers out there who would like to talk about this further, I'd be happy to talk about it. Turning to Neiman Marcus, Pat, it's your turn. It's virtually impossible to avoid seeing articles that don't predict the imminent demise of the entire retail sector. So, Pat, why don't you tell us a little about Neiman? Sure. Just starting at a high level with Neiman, the company's got about $4.5 billion of total funded debt, including a term loan for roughly $3 billion. That, that term loan trades at about 80. <clears throat> the term loan's secured. We've written about some of the ways that there, there may be potential deficiencies in, in its collateral package, but generally it has a blanket lien on, on all assets, substantially all assets. The company also has issued about a billion seven in unsecured notes due 2021. Those are guaranteed, like the term loan is, by the same subsidiaries. <clears throat> 2021's trade in the low 50s, last I checked. And then they have um, some structure of the senior notes due 2028, about 125 million. Those are issued out of an OPCO. They're not guaranteed by subsidiaries, but they're secured by some of the same collateral that secures the term loan, not all of the same collateral. And, and uh, <clears throat> those notes trade in the mid-70s. So Reorg's done a waterfall analysis that suggested that, that there could be a fairly significant difference in recovery between the 2028 notes and the bank debt as a result of the collateral and guarantee package differences that, um, you know, that I alluded to. So currently, the company has the luxury of time. It's got pretty significant liquidity and capacity under its revolver, but it, of course, faces the headwinds that a lot of the retailers are facing right now, and it's over-leveraged, so people are, are wondering where, <clears throat> where things may be headed. 
So where do you think it's headed, given some of the things that they've done to date and the constraints uh, within its debt documents? It's hard to predict at this, at this, you know, these early stages, especially because they've got a weak covenant package in the term loan, so they've got a lot of flexibility, which I'll talk about. There's no near-term catalyst. Nearest maturity isn't until July 2020, and they have availability, as I said, under the revolver. So you could see a deleveraging exchange given their secured debt capacity. We, as we mentioned in our coverage, they have probably about a billion dollars of secured debt that they could offer the, the 2021 notes in an exchange. And given where those are, those notes are trading, they may be that may be enough of a premium to offer them in an exchange. And then there have been no shortage of acquisition rumors, most notably that Hudson's Bay, which owns Saks Fifth Avenue and some other somewhat comparable companies, may want to come in and buy Neiman without assuming Neiman's debt. And we've written about the ways to structure a transaction in which Hudson's Bay or another company may be able to buy the equity or assets in the company without assuming all of the debt. Although importantly, we've concluded that there doesn't appear to be a clean way for a company to come in and take voting control of the company or substantially all of the company's assets without assuming at least some of the debt. But perhaps they can structure the best transaction they can, which may be a transaction in which an acquirer buys a minority stake in Neiman without assuming the debt. Um, perhaps, perhaps you see something like what Intelsat is trying, a sale of the company conditioned on a deleveraging exchange. But haven't they also moved um, assets under restricted subsidiaries not that long ago? What do you see them doing with those, or why do you think they did them? Yeah, it's interesting. They, they, they have. They transferred a few buildings with a book value of about $100 million to an unrestricted subsidiary. <laughs> and then they've designated the entity that runs the My Teresa business as an unrestricted subsidiary. So we've discussed how one might value My Teresa and some of the interesting language in the debt documents regarding how it should be valued. But we assume it's in the neighborhood of about $250 million. And when you throw in the $100 million of buildings, they've transferred probably about $350 million of value to unrestricted subsidiaries. Uh, that alone wouldn't be enough to address the outstanding debt at the restricted group, although they certainly could potentially raise debt at those unrestricted subsidiaries and offer it in an exchange for the restricted group's debt, along with the other debt issued out of the restricted group. They may also seek to spin those entities off and potentially avoid having to comply with the mandatory prepayment provisions under the bank debt. It's also possible that they don't have any particular plan with those assets right now, but that they transferred the, them you know, while they had a significant amount of investments capacity under their debt documents. Part of the investments capacity is based on a two times fixed charge coverage ratio, which we've calculated. And it seems like it's possible that they were just under that ratio as of the most recent quarter's financial statements and that they therefore transferred the assets right before filing those financial statements while they were still over the ratio. And that would maximize investments capacity. And so maybe they were just opportunistic and that's why they, they transferred them when they did. Now, I, I, we, we saw these transfers to unrestricted subs be challenged in J. Crew. Uh, do you see something like that happening here? That's a good question. I, I, I do think there are some important differences between Neiman and J. Crew on this point. You know, first I'll say there's always the incentive to try to challenge transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. We've written about the ways the transfers eroded to credit support for the bank debt in Neiman, and obviously how, you know, now that they're unrestricted, they're, they're probably free to do things that they may not have otherwise been free to do given restrictions in the debt documents. So I, th- I do think there are potentially avenues that the term lenders in Neiman could explore for challenging the transfers, but I do think it's a very different situation from J. Crew. J. Crew transferred 70 plus percent of its intellectual property to unrestricted subsidiaries, and it split up the IP. It also relied on fairly unique investments baskets in its term loan, 
and therefore it structured the transaction, the, the IP transfer in two separate transactions, which may have violated other loan covenants. In contrast, Neiman has relatively straightforward investment baskets that may have permitted the transfers, and in fact, it may may permit additional transfers beyond what has been transferred to date, which we've written about. It didn't really split up its assets like J.Crew did. It designated an existing restricted subsidiary, the MyTerese entity, as an unrestricted subsidiary, which may have been cleaner than the way J.Crew went about splitting up the IP because the, you know, the existing corporate intercompany arrangement at Neiman may have already mm-hmm. been established. Although, again, this is not to say that it's impossible for them to, to challenge the transactions in Neiman. They could poke holes in the arrangement between My Teresa and the restricted group, or they could challenge the valuation of the assets. They could look to in-depth to the financial calculations that the company relied on. So I guess the takeaway is there, there doesn't seem to be as much of a basis from where I sit for challenging the transfers in Neiman as there was in J. Crew, but that's not at all to say that a challenge is impossible under the term loan. And and fraudulent transfer is always an avenue that could be explored by lenders if the facts are there. Right. Now, um, you had mentioned that there may be ways to structure a sale of Neiman without having the buyer assume the debt. Do you want to walk listeners through how that could happen and how a sale could implicate change of control provisions? Yeah, that's been a hot topic given the acquisition rumors. So there are a few things to consider in answering to consider um, <clears throat> in answering that question. The first is the change in control provisions. Certain changes in control can trigger a put right under the bonds. 2021s, which require the company to take them out at 101. And under the bank debt, a change in control is an event of default that would accelerate the term loan. So you have to consider the change in control provisions. The other thing to consider is the merger covenant under the bonds. That covenant basically prevents the issuer and its restricted subsidiaries from selling all or substantially all of their assets unless the buyer assumes the bonds. The name and bank debt, interestingly, does not have a merger covenant. It does have an asset sales covenant that prevents the company from selling assets unless certain conditions are satisfied. I'll just kind of bracket that for now. There's a potentially significant carve out in the bank debt, but let me just lay out the format for now. <clears throat> so those are the two you know, primary considerations, the change in control provisions and the, mm-hmm. and the merger covenant. Uh, with respect to the change in control you know, for one thing, that's only triggered if the majority of the voting equity interest changes chance. So it's not triggered if minority voting interests or, or per, equity interests are purchased. And it's also not triggered if just the economic equity interests as opposed to the voting equity interests are transferred. So even if it's more than a majority of the economic interests that are transferred, that wouldn't trigger the, the change in control. So a buyer could potentially purchase a minority voting stake or majority economic stake. <clears throat> you know, as a practical matter, there may be you know, reasons why that strategy wouldn't work, but but that's just how it would work under the docs. And, <clears throat> and then with respect to the change in control provisions, there is an exception under the bonds for sales to public companies, which may include Hudson's Bay, whose equity is publicly traded. So under the bonds, a public company could buy a majority of the voting equity without triggering the change in control under the bonds, potentially. Uh, however, there is no public company exception under the term loan. So that structure would nevertheless trigger the change in control under the term loan and require a refinancing or pay down of that debt. So th- there are a number of nuances on these points, but those are sort of the high level points on, on change in control. And, and that's mostly relevant for sales of the equity in the company. In terms of a sale of substantially all assets, again, you have to consider the merger covenant under the bonds. The, the buyer has to assume the bonds if it buys all or substantially all of the assets. The term loan is interesting. I alluded to this before. There's no merger covenant, but there's an asset sales covenant, but it carves out any asset sales as long as Neiman gets fair market value and 75% of the consideration is cash. But 
uh, in Neiman's term loan, any assumption of debt is treated as cash under the terms of the credit agreement. And so there may be some creative ways to structure a sale that takes advantage of that carve out, which we've written about. Anyway, I think that's a lot uh, to handle in, in, in one session. Uh, I hope people enjoyed the podcast and I hope that uh, you continue to listen. Tune in next time for Reorg Covenants podcast. Thank you, everybody.